Well, Blake, that was a fun one. 2-1 Blue Jays win at Rogers Center. We get to break down here on Jays Talk. I'm Joe Ali alongside Blake Murphy. We are in for Blair and Barker. The guys are back tomorrow. I, I am usually the person screening calls, Blake, so because the phone is at baseball control and I'm here at Rogers Center and my arm does not reach that far, the length of show alley does not reach across the downtown core. Uh, no calls today, just texts. Just if text. you did have that kind of wingspan, you'd be on the Toronto Raptors. Masai would have <laughs> scooped you up by now, for sure. Yes, I will probably be a center who gets bodied easily under the rim, but uh, yes, uh, no calls today, just texts. But, however, when Blair and Barker are back tomorrow, I will happily screen your calls for them. But for today, you can text us at 59590. Leave your name and location. We'll read those throughout the show. Don't text and drive if you're out and about, but maybe you're leaving the ballpark. But if you have a passenger next to you, maybe get them to text in at 59590. But a 2-1 Blue Jays win. And I guess we could start in any number of ways here, Blake. But I kind of wanted to start with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. real quick, just because... You know, there was, a, I, I would say that the, the moment that got a lot of people out of their seats, certainly two George Springer home runs are going to do that, right? Two Springer dingers in April are absolutely going to get the crowd out of their seats. But Vladdy throwing the bat down at some, you know, it's funny to think that the, the, the first time he, had, he took umbrage with the call, it, maybe it was a liffy, what was off the plate, maybe, you know, was that was, I, I, can, I can feel him on that one. The second one, that he threw the bat down in disgust. That was, I think, more clearly a strike. But at the same time, I think it's something more, something larger, maybe something more indicative of how he feels, not necessarily at, in that moment or, you know, generally speaking over the course of the season. I just feel like you look at how Vladdy is being treated and dare I say how a lot of the stars across Major League Baseball are being treated. Like, you see Shohei Otani on a regular basis. Like, these guys must be some of the most patient human beings on the face of the planet. And I just, the umpires are so quick to pull the trigger on calls that are off the plate or calls that are outside or what have you. And so I just, I can't help but think, you know what, fair on Vladimir Guerrero Jr. for getting upset, right? If you look at the stat cast box on Baseball Savant, and you can go and find that pretty easily on MLB.com, I mean... He gets a lot of calls. He gets rung up on a lot of calls that are not strikes, right? And I just, I so I totally get his frustration. Yeah, and it's it, the toughest thing for him has got to be that he is he sees almost fewer pitchers in the zone than anyone else in baseball, right? And so he's already getting not a lot of strikes to work with here. We're talking thirty-seven percent of the pitches he faces are in the zone. That's really low, and. I think at this point, in Vlad's estimation, he's established himself as someone who knows the strike zone really well. He handles it well. Like, we've seen this guy take some very tough pitches for balls, and I think maybe there's an element of, hey, I know the strike zone. I'm making the right calls in these moments, and I'm getting pinched. And the one today, I thought it was more an accumulation of over his three plate appearances more than anything in that one plate appearance. Um, He ends up striking out twice in his estimation, obviously, because he got pinched on a couple calls there. So, I mean, you don't really have a choice but to continue to play through it, and Vlad's obviously still hitting very well, but he's cooled off a little bit from his hot start, and I'd imagine that's that's kind of frustrating for him from a process versus results standpoint because he's putting the right work in process-wise and laying off bad stuff that he can't maybe drive, and, yeah, he's getting pinched a, a a little often, and it does feel like 
maybe it's been disproportionate for the Jays last little bit. There have certainly been instances where they benefited. Uh, one of the Red Sox games in particular, yep. uh, there was a, a Barrios 3-1 today that uh, he got a little fortunate on. You can always pick out. Mesa rung up a guy yeah. to end, end the inning as well. Probably wasn't a strike. I get it. You you can pick uh you can pick your spots right. Like every team could come out of every game aggrieved, um, but. Vlad is a premier hitter. He came yeah. second in MVP voting last year and has established over a couple years now that he knows the strike zone well, and if he feels like it's a consistent game or a consistent series of that, he's probably going to show it. I know this sounds like a homer take here, but I, I just feel like when, when you have iffy calls like that, calls should go the way of the star, right? Like it sh- They should go the way of Vladimir Gurr Jr. They should go the way of, I don't know, Juan Soto. They should go the way of Otani. Because these are the premier stars. I'm not saying you like massage it necessarily, but I just feel like, and maybe maybe it's because the, the guys I all mentioned, they're all very young, right? Maybe they are still early on in their MLB journeys, their MLB careers. That umpires haven't gotten that to that respect level yet. But it just it just seems kind of absurd that that might be the case. I I think I disagree with you on that one, just because. If umpires were accurate enough to know, oh, that's really borderline, and think in the moment I should give that to the star, they would be good enough at it to just call the right call. Right. And so I think that we have evidence of, what is it, 88 89% or something like that uh, of uh, those calls uh, end up being accurate. I think if they could get that granular with their decision making they should just make the right calls um that's why we need the robots blake yeah we need the ro- you know i'm a big fan of those robots <laughs> bring me the robot strike zone we'll find something else to complain about <laughs> with the robots but man poor alejandro kirk he becomes this great framer of pitches at the bottom of the zone and you want to get rid of that skill by bringing in the robots what has he done all this work for show hey you can still go out there and, and prevent balls from getting to the backstop and so on that's a good that's a skill too yeah, tough. Uh, by the way, little statistical oddity here. Okay. So Alejandro Kirk goes 0 for 3 today, uh, fly out, an infield fly, and a strikeout. So he finishes the month with 62 plate appearances and not a single extra base hit. It's the 10th most in a month ever for there a Blue go. Jay right. without an extra base hit. Some real incredible names ahead of him on the list. So this is a list of most plate appearances in a single month as a Blue Jay without an extra base hit. And I know some of them that got bandied around as he was coming up were hey reed johnson that month that he got hit by a million pitches <laughs> steve pierce uh in 2017 even john olerud had one and alejandro kirk's obp coming in higher than john olerud really? is is how you wow. be a little comfortable with the month he had he still ended up uh having about a 345 obp which is by far the highest on uh, this list but the names ahead of him at number one Boston Celtics, former Boston Celtics GM Danny Ainge. Really? Yeah, wow. Danny Ainge, 97 plate appearances in July 79 right. without an extra base hit. Slash 244, 281, 244. Any chance, look, I know I'm switching over from Raptors to Jays right now, but any chance to throw shade at Danny Ainge, <laughs> I'm going to find. So thank you to Alejandro Kirk for letting us close out April with that. Hey, I bet if you tuned into Jay's talk today, you never thought you'd hear a reference to Danny Ainge after a 2-1 Blue Jays win over the Astros. But, hey, I like it. Alejandro Kirk, too. I mean, we got a text here from Connor and Vaughn, right, Blake? And he says, what do you guys think happens with the catching situation with Danny returns? Uh, Who gets the majority of starts at, at catcher and DH? What happens with the odd man out? It's something we've been discussing, gosh, I feel like even before the Zach Allen trade, right? Like coming into the season, we were talking about the Blue Jays carrying Kirk, 
Danny Jansen and, of course, Reese McGuire. And obviously, Reese McGuire is in Chicago right now. Also, as an aside, Reese McGuire batting, relatively speaking, often and high in the Chicago White Sox lineup as, yes, Monty Grandal getting DH'd a lot. Anyways, that, I bet that they after that trade, you never thought you'd see that all that often, but still happening. At a decent clip for Chicago, but uh, so he's checking in by the way at a 2.12 OBP <laughs> over uh, over his 33 plate appearances. Oh, so not a lot's changed on that front. No, not 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 a surprising statistic, I would say. But uh, now that Zach Collins is here in the city of Toronto, I just uh, I think it's a good question from Connor because the the, the discussion kind of revolved around would the Jays simply carry three catchers, and I think that looked that looked like it was it was going to be what happens, and certainly what's happening right now when. When Danny Jansen comes back, it seems relatively speaking likely. But I don't know. I feel like the the Blue Jays, I think, like having the versatility. We know they like Collins having the option left. Kirk, I mean, you just mentioned all the stats with the OBP and so on and no not, no extra base hits. And there were quite a few bloop uh, singles that allowed him to get on base earlier this you know, earlier this month. But a couple and, infield singles. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, hey, look, I, I, I love what Kirk brings to the plate and his defensive improvement. I think is probably the biggest story for him so far this season, but it certainly feels like they're getting ready to continue carrying three catchers. They, they seem to really like Zach Collins, so if that's the case, I feel like three catchers will be the way to go. I, I think that's probably the direction they go. Alejandro Kirk obviously hasn't had the offensive numbers maybe you'd expect, but it serves as a good reminder that he's still very young and very early on in his uh, development curve. And I think from a process standpoint, you're still really impressed with the type of plate appearances Kirk turns in regularly. Yeah. Um, ben Wagner mentioned earlier in the broadcast that, that his strikeoutless streak ended last night at 41. And if you're a 23-year-old and you're what we could say maybe struggling at the plate because he hasn't been able to drive anything and you can go 41 plate appearances without wasting one with a strikeout I think it says a lot about where you're at from a process standpoint so I don't have a lot of concern that Kirk's bat isn't going to come around and then yeah Collins is probably locked in here because you look at how this bench is made up and you know they could run a man short on the bench and go with only two catchers um, Monday at noon. They have to shrink the roster by two, so right. it's actually not tomorrow, like I initially thought. Ben Nicholson Smith uh, providing us with that information earlier today, so you could go with a shorter bench like that. However, you'd think that Vinny Capra or Gosuke Kato are headed down, given how little we've seen them use middle infield guys, um, and that Collins, yeah, slides in as a part-time DH for this team as well and is novel on this roster as a lefty who can hit for power. So I would expect that to continue. I think once Danny Jansen is healthy, and Jansen caught that Hyunjin Ryu um, live BP today, so maybe he's progressing as well, um, I would still think he gets the lion's share of the starts at catcher. Um, It's just where he is defensively and with the staff and particularly – with Ryu when Ryu's back as well, um, I think he's he's probably earned that. And then you move into Kirk and Collins splitting time across DH and backup catcher. You know, you could make a case for, hey, what if Kirk goes down to AAA so he can get everyday plate appearances and stuff like that? I don't really know that it holds up given where, again, the process has been at the plate and the fact that you've got Gabriel Moreno who yeah, uh, has yeah. cooled off significantly with Buffalo, but you still want him seeing everyday plate appearances as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's funny the the Moreno conversation. It, it's it's funny because there there's all, it always feels like, no matter where you are, and I think this is probably a credit to both 
Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins. But no matter where you are in the development cycle of a prospect, it always kind of feels like you're always looking a little bit to the horizon to see who's coming next. Like when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was coming, I remember we used to like go to Fisher Cat at bats, Darius <laughs> at bats, and I remember when. And then after he got called up, it was Bo, and then you know Biggio, and then. After that, it was Pearson, and you know you're ha you're having all of these different call-up discussions. So Moreno is always going to be a part of that, or Elvis Martinez to slightly lesser extent. I, I dare I say and make a prediction, uh, Blake, and say that Ricky Tiedemann is going to be the, I was just the next guy. Up, <laughs> I was just bringing up his Fangraphs page because he had that what five shutout innings with with seven or eight Ks the other day, uh, off to a phenomenal start at A ball at at just age 19. So uh, yeah, when you're striking out half the batters you face as a 19 year old yeah. in A ball, I'm I'm going to be I'm definitely going to be bringing up your box scores after the fact, if not watching live. <laughs> yeah, he, he is for sure the next guy. Like, once Moreno is up, once Martinez is up, I'm, I feel like Jordan Groshans is always going to have part of that conversation too. But, uh, but yeah, I think uh, after what he did a couple days ago, I guess it was yesterday, uh, Ricky Tiedemann definitely uh, turning some heads down for the Dunedin Blue Jays. Um, you know what? We actually got some reinforcements at Baseball Control, I hear, uh, Blake. So we can take your calls oh, today. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Unbelievable. It's, what a twist, right? It's like a, a roller coaster of emotions out here at, <laughs> at Rogers Center. So you can call us in addition to texting us. 416 1-888-666-0590, star 590 on your cellular device. Austin Mackey and Josh Shanto is providing the uh, the reinforcements back at Baseball Control. So, yeah, you can give us a call, and, of, and of course, you can text us as well at 590-590. I haven't uh, had the pleasure of meeting Austin yet. So. All right, well, there you go. Th Austin? Look forward to that. Thanks, Austin. We for, appreciate it. For taking these calls. Don't let any jabronis through. No pressure. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of, of, of such a moment today, when Charlie got tossed... <laughs> And I, I'll, I want to say that when Charlie got tossed, I, I do feel like he was out of the dugout at warp speed. Like, he was out probably less because he was frustrated himself with the strike zone and probably because he felt that if Vladimir Guerrero Jr. carried on, he was going to get yeah. tossed. That's kind of how I felt. Just, just the way it looked. Like, it's, you can't really obviously see on radio, but he was out of the dugout so quickly. I don't think I'd ever see, even for a pitching change or anything like that in recent memory, I don't think I've seen... Uh, Charlie get out of the dugout that fast off the top step. So he and he clearly got in the face of the umpire. The umpire clasps his hands behind his back to patiently kind of listen to what Charlie was saying. And then the another coach yeah. <laughs> comes down the line and just kind of bodies, puts his chest right up to up to Charlie Montoya. So, so that was crew chief Ted Barrett, who yeah. is a huge dude. And Charlie Montoya went from arguing eyeball to eyeball with Nick Lentz to arguing eyeball to chest with yes. with uh, Ted Barrett. A little bit of moment of intimidation there. Um, I, I our pal Andrew Zuber uh, texted me and he's like, "Oh yeah, the uh, the traditional get tossed out of a game early on a Saturday afternoon is uh, is a nice piece of work from Charlie." So he, not not the worst time to get tossed. I, I always get a kick out of that. I think I think Charlie uses his like reserves his bullets pretty well with that kind of thing he doesn't get tossed regularly and doesn't get that heated with the umpires regularly although it's happened twice this month um so i do think it, it maybe carries a little extra weight when he does do it. it it's kind of one of those cry wolf things right if you're if you're always like that it's maybe tough for an umpire to to hear you out but when you're when that's very against your character maybe it it sticks yeah we'll see how it works with vlad tomorrow because it's the same crew obviously it's funny, right? Because you know, you look back at Charlie Montoya over the over his ten years manager of the Blue Jays. Not a super long time, but you know, he's been here for a number of years now, and uh, obviously coming over from the Tampa Bay Rays. And I just I remember when he was hired, a lot of people 
viewed him maybe as a as an you know not an interim manager but like the guy you hire and then you get someone else once the the team is in World Series contention or something like that and they gave him the contract extension I I think deservedly so and uh, you know I, I think probably you know you probably could always find fault with something but generally speaking this year I I would say I've I've liked the buttons the buttons he's pushed to, for the bullpen and the batting order and so on and I mean guys struggle is you know this part of it is up to the players too but. It's just, it's just funny to think that I remember last season and the season before, how many discussions were was everyone having about Charlie needing to get out of his seat and going to fight for the players and going to the mound and going, you know, can I just, did they, I think people just wanted to see Charlie get fired up more. And, you know, you're not going to always going to listen to those kinds of uh, asks necessarily from, from, a, from a hostile crowd when, when you're not getting your calls and what have you from the umpiring crew. But, I mean, you know what, this, I don't know if it's just he's more comfortable in his role or maybe this is always who Charlie was and, and now he just has decided to let it show a little more. Yeah, he's, he's, he's more fired up this year. You see him chirping umps from the dugout, him and John Schneider and Pete Walker doing it basically all the time, right? So I, I, I got to say, I, I, I like them seeing and hearing more emotion on a regular basis. If you're a manager, I don't think you have a lot of choice other than to be yourself. But yeah, there are little things you could tweak at the margin, especially, you know, he's a couple years in with this group. He knows when that dugout is okay and confident with getting pinched like that and fighting through it and when maybe they need someone to step up and you know I think that one really just amounts to he was trying to make sure Vlad didn't get tossed because Vlad's obviously frustrated and he knew at that moment that Vlad needed that backup so I don't think it's like I I I don't have a a quota of I would like my manager to get tossed this often right Uh, right. you know it's one of those it's like a technical foul with an NBA coach is you don't want him letting everything go because then the players start to be the ones that yeah that get lippy yeah. about it and you'd certainly rather lose your manager than a key player for the rest of the game um i thought he's done a fine job overall though this year you know i, I think there's maybe one instance where i i didn't love uh, a certain bullpen decision but the thing about sports fandom and sports radio is that there's nothing better than bullpen decisions to, to pick at because you always get the benefit of hindsight um you don't have to say who you would have brought in in what situation and stuff. And I think, you know, the Jays being 8-2 and two in one-run games now is uh, all you need to know, really. I, I don't think a manager makes a ton, a ton, a ton of difference um, over the course of 162. But if you're looking for indicators, one-run game performance is probably a good start. So 8-2 and two in those now, pretty impressive. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines here. 416-870-0590, 888 0590 or star 590 on your cellular device. Matthew is on the DVP. And Matthew, you want to talk about, uh, as, as we're talking about, this umpire who stepped to Montoya today. Yeah, I, I was not impressed with the way that he uh, conducted himself. What, what kind of major league umpire steps himself five or six steps towards a manager and then throws him out? That's kind of nonsense, man. I don't know what you guys think, but that's that's a little bit offside to me. 
No, I appreciate the call, Matthew. Yeah, thank you for calling in. I, I hey, I I remember when I my initial visceral reaction. I'll say, Blake, when it happened here, and you could so, kind of see him walk up and bump his chest into Charlie Montoya's shoulder. Was what is what is happening here? Is this like an is this like an intimidation WWE type move here? You know what I mean? Like that was honest to God my first thought. That, that's what it felt like when Lentz kind of turned it over to Ted Barrett. Who, yeah. Again, Ted Barrett's the Lentz was the one who tossed him. Barrett was the the larger crew chief that comes in after, and it did very much feel like the cowardly heel, like ducking behind the heavy, <laughs> right. like you take the cheap shot at the at the good guy, and then uh, you know Diesel has your back or something like that. Or if we want to go basketball side. Them sing okay. uh, now. All right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it did feel a little bit like that. And, and Lentz was pretty loud and demonstrative from the jump, right? Like, I, I think it was the first inning where he called time at the plate and he was yelling into the Jays' dugout early, early, early in this one. So, I don't know if something happened yesterday that, that kind of set the wheels in motion on this or it was just a, a testy day for Lentz and Montoyo. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't the, wasn't the smoothest of situations between uh, the Jays' dugout and Lentz there. Um, And I guess, too, probably uh, a tight game doesn't help either. Yeah, yeah. The crowd definitely uh, was not impressed. Everyone in the lower bowl and and around the stadium getting to their feet at that point. We got to, if there's one thing I can bring from being at a ton of Raptors games to to being at more Jays games, Uh is the refuse suck chant that has become synonymous (laughs) with Toronto Raptors fandom uh, could make its way in here. I don't know. You're trying to do the wave in a key spot in the seventh inning. Maybe you get on ump you suck instead. Uh, hey, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind a couple a couple uh, crowd chants every every now and again. I feel uh, like it'd be really tough to get everyone in here. What was it? Forty thousand in here today, so that that might be a little tough to coordinate. But if you can coordinate the wave, you can coordinate a you can coordinate that. Uh, let's get back to the text line as yeah. well. I see Paul in Toronto, and again, you can text us at five ninety five ninety. Leave your name and location. Uh, can a team really contend? With Bradley Zimmer going 0 for 4 every single game, literally, well, for Paul in Toronto. First of all, Paul, Bradley Zimmer went 0 for 3. He didn't get up a fourth time because you have players like Bradley Zimmer in the lineup and don't get to turn the lineup over yeah. enough. Um, by the way, I, I didn't want to mention this in our pregame because I don't. when we do those, like, those three or four minutes of potential prop bets for the game, right. I don't like to do negative ones, but the Bradley Zimmer zero hits – at minus 130 is uh, is free money of late. So Zimmer is obviously going through it. And I don't think, in terms of the, the actual content of the question, the, the contention with him playing a regular role, uh, I don't think he's playing a regular role. Like, I think right now he's filling in for some of the Teoscar uh, absence. And then once you have Danny Jansen back, he will be seeing fewer plate appearances in that DH spot. Um, I I think it's a pretty... It's pretty self-evident that he's just not a, a major league caliber hitter right yeah, now. Yeah. He's certainly a major league caliber fielder. We saw him make one great diving catch and then another one on a double into the gap where uh, he almost got to it. And I don't know a lot of people that would have almost yeah. got to that one. He basically only he didn't survive the ground, didn't survive the catch and, yeah. and the turf. But we're talking about an OBP that's barely over 100 right now. He's been on base twice in 29 plate appearances. Oh yeah, Zimmer oh, three times in twenty nine play appearances. He he makes some great plays in the outfield, and that's why he's out there, right? That and and it just it just it's just tough, right? Because you look at what he brings with the glove, and it is, it is undoubtedly very impressive the kinds of things he does with the glove. There's no there there's no chance you can argue that, but 
you know, it, it's funny. We always talk about like the kind of tool players. How, how many uh, tools a player has in the toolbox? And Zimmer, I think, has a lot. He does have a lot. It's just one of those tools. The, the maybe the dullest tool is the tool at the plate. And it's, if you if that's the case, I just don't know how much more you can make the argument, which is I, which is why I think uh, the texture was was sending in this message. I don't know how much you can really live with that. And again, when Teoscar Hernandez comes back, I think you'll see less of Zimmer probably, mm-hmm. even though he has a left-handed bat. But I don't know. I, I, I kind of agree. It's just it is tough to basically know that you have someone out there who's just going to basically take a strike or just be another out almost every time he's at the plate. And this was the book on him even as a prospect, right? At one point, he was the number two prospect in the Cleveland system. And it was like, wow, he has like, 60 grade potential on raw power and like he's the rare he could be a 60 60 on the on the 2080 scale with power and speed and he's a plus fielder and he's got a big arm but the concern was always the hit tool like even the most optimistic projections for him were that he was going to have a below average hit tool when he got to this level what we've seen over six partial seasons now is that has gone in the wrong direction uh, pretty consistently. So, you know, strikeouts increasing over time. The walk rate, only a brief spike here and there because if you can't hit anything, they're not going to bother walking you. You get a lot of a lot of stuff to hit. And it, it looks like, honestly, it's only 29 plate appearances, but it does look like he's pressing a little bit. He's got a little bit of the the bow issue right now where it's he's trying to jump on everything. I, I don't know if it's he's so eager that – so eager to – get a hit and get in the mix and contribute that he's first pitch he sees that that he could do anything with he's trying to jump on but he has not done the the thing we've seen some of the other guys lower in the lineup do like Kirk and Tapia and Espinal and and Chapman before his bat turned around where they're working longer at bats to at least wear out a pitcher and let let the guys at the top of your order see more pitches it's been pretty empty plate appearances for Zimmer yeah it felt like every time even in today's game alone every time he went up to the plate the at bat was over momentarily, essentially, right? Look, there weren't there were not very long plate appearances. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and you know, you, sometimes if you strike out twice, maybe those are longer plate appearances <laughs> because you're working at. Uh, that was not the case here. No, and, and then no. the one plate appearance he had that wasn't a strikeout was a pop up in the infield, which you know analytically is even more troubling than a strikeout. That's that's really bad contact. So um, he's going through it a bit. I. We're going to look at this roster crunch in a little bit. And like Monday at noon, again, the rosters have to shrink by two. And you can have a maximum of 14 pitchers on on your roster. They could get rid of one bench piece still. Um, whether that's Capra or, or Coteau, Zimmer's out of options. So I don't think it's him. I think he's kicking around until they absolutely have to make a decision on it. But he's not a, he's not an everyday baseball player right now. You know, I, I know he didn't play today, but... I got to say, I really hope Coteau is not one of the guys who gets sent down. I think that what he can bring to this ball club, it, you know, and, and again, it's, it's not a, he's not an everyday player. He is a utility piece. But based on what we have seen out of Coteau, I mean, it's a great story, too. You know, nine years in the minors, and he gets his first, uh, he gets his first hit, a double. And, you know, you hear Charlie talking about it after the game. Well, it's very feel-good. But just beyond that, what he brings on the field – I like what he brings in terms of maybe getting guys days off if they need to. We saw that when Vladdy had the you know the kind of brief foot injury with the ball right off the top of his foot and and so on. I just I really hope if if it is if it is a bench piece that's not a pitcher. I I just I don't know. I really hope it's not Cato. Yeah, and so there's a I I would have thought he was sticking around. 
The Vinnie Capra move the other day was a little confusing to me, though, because you don't have to, like, because Biggio's on the COVID IL, you don't have to do, you don't necessarily have to clear a spot, right? right. Um, you can add someone to the 40-man without clearing Biggio from it. But when Biggio returns, you will have 41 players on your 40-man. So yeah. I don't know if Capra's sticking around for a little while, if they'll expose him to, to waivers to send him back down, or if someone's going on the 60-day DL at some point, and, and that'll be the, the coinciding move. They've got a little while to figure that out, but it was a little bit confusing, I'll say, as someone who thought Gosuke Kato probably had a, a spot for a little while. What do you do with Biggio at this point? You know what I mean? Like when he com- when he comes back off the COVID IL, which will be you know relatively speaking soon. I just you know we had we had a text earlier about you know guys who get sent back down to the minors to Buffalo and fig- they figure it out. It can help. That's something that can help players. We're at the point now where Santiago Espinal fairly is the everyday second baseman. Now I've said before that players like Kevin Biggio are the types of players championship ball clubs need to win like guys who may not play every day but guys who are still valuable and can pinch it if needed guys who can fill in when other guys need days off guys who can rotate around the infield or outfield as needed right we know Biggio wants to play primarily second base but it just seems that that's probably not going to happen right now for the for the most part barring a day off for Espinal or maybe who knows? Maybe Espinal fills in somewhere else, and Biggio fills in at second or something like that. They're gonna—that's gonna happen over the course of a full 162. But I just go back and forth on as to what should happen with Kevin Biggio because I don't—I'm not ready for them to give up on the guy yet. I mean, I think he can still be a very good ball player. It's just wh- where does he fit in long term with this Blue Jays ball club? That's really something that he has control of because he's gonna get opportunities still. The names that are behind him are names like Cato and, and Capra, where there's not like Aurelius Martinez is not knocking on the door. He's in Double A and he's hitting home runs, but that's about all he's doing. And so yeah, it, it's Biggio or guys who are generally considered to be just a guy or depth middle infielder types. Right. Uh, I don't know that Otto Lopez is there yet. Um, so with Biggio. Maybe the best thing for him out of this is he gets a rehab assignment as he's coming back from the COVID IL, and that lets him get a few lower leverage everyday plate appearances. Because you're right in theory that teams need guys like Kevin Biggio, the version 2019 to 2021, even 2021 where he had a, a pretty big dip in his performance. It's still valuable to have a guy who can fill in a bunch of spots and work good plate appearances rather than having to go to the minors or do 40-man churn for that guy on your bench. But the way Biggio was playing before he went on the IL was not anywhere close to that guy. He was, you know, this is a guy who's supposed to work walks and supposed to be someone who gives you productive plate appearances, the type we've talked about with, with other depth guys. And, you know, he's struck out in, what did he have? He had 10 strikeouts to three walks over 13 games like that's that's not the cavit that's not even the bad version of Kevin Biggio yeah, yeah. that you'd come to have as a baseline for him over the last three years so like last year the excuse I think was injury right I mean he had a, he had a ton of injuries sure you but I get away from that what I'm saying is that the gap between last year's Biggio which was quote-unquote bad Biggio and this year's Biggio is a mile wide right. like you would take last year's version of him as a super sub um, but that wasn't wasn't even remotely that like last year was kind of the baseline performance you expect from him like that's that's your 
your floor on Biggio, yeah. and he's been uh, well below that. So the honest answer is he controls his own fate with that a little bit. I don't think he's ever going to – I don't think he's going to be off the roster anytime soon, but he's got to hit a little bit to make a case for playing time. Let's go back to the phone lines, 416-870-0590, one 590 star 590 on your cellular device. You're listening to Jay's Talk here, show and Blake until the top of the hour. Clifton in Etobicoke, you want to talk about Bo Bichette, I hear. Yes, yes, fellas, listen. Now, I'm totally against all this talk about moving Bo from the two-hole. Because here's what I believe. Now, if this kid is one of your cornerstones, he's going to have to show you that he can make these adjustments necessary. And I think from an organization point of view, they also, they're like evaluating whether or not they're going to, you know, give this guy the contract that he deserves. So he has to show that he can make these adjustments, man. I don't believe that every time that, you know, like one of your star players run into these kind of slumps, you're going to have to, like, move him all over the place. Like, you move him here, you move him there. I kind of, you know, equate it to, like, people. I run the lottery pool at work. And, you know, from time to time, people will come to me, hey, stop playing those numbers, as if we know, I know the right numbers to pick. You just have to leave this guy, you know, let him go through his struggles, go home, watch films, make the adjustments, and at some point he's going to find it back. I heard a guy last night talking about, you know, uh, Charlie Montoya is like starting to become like Cito Gaston, his prosaic way of managing. Right. Buddy, it's, it has proven with Cito, like people were calling for Cito to take Devon White out of the leadoff position, Rob Ducey is a better hitter and all these things. And when the stretch run started, you know, it was Devo, Manny Lee, all these guys that people were calling for. You have to manage 162 games. That's, you know, that's what I'm trying to say here. Guys are going to struggle. Guys are going to, you know, it's, peak, it's you know, all about peaks and valleys, man. So if these are the guys that you pick, you're going to have to stick with them. Clifton, let me, let me ask you. Uh, Bo went two for four today. He got some solid contact. He uh, stole second as well. Looked pretty aggressive on the base pass. Uh, does that give you hope that it's it's going to turn around here anytime soon? Even before he... Oh. We may have lost is a good hitter. He's going to come around. You know, like guys go through slumps, man. And, and, and to be a great hitter, like these things don't come by accident. You're going to have to be constantly making adjustments. You know, that's what great players do. So if every time they hit a slump, you're going to, like, move them out, how are they going to learn? Let him go home, watch films, make adjustments. That's what great players do. Appreciate the call, Clifton. I, I, I agree with you. I do agree with you. If we think, if we think the trajectory of Bo Bichette's career is that he will eventually be not just a very good exciting player to watch but one of the one of the greats in baseball right because again like i said to you before blake when if people say who are the top three shortstops in baseball i bet you and again we're, we're in toronto maybe a little biased here but if you, <laughs> if you asked most people i bet bobachet is probably in most people's conversation right like maybe trey turner is in there you know you got other guys in there as well 
But uh, Bo Bichette, often in that conversation for top shortstop in the game. And I agree with Clifton. I think, I, I, hey, would, would I hate it if he got bumped down to three or four? No. But as we said before on the pregame show, can the Blue Jays really afford to do that as long as Teoscar Hernandez is on the shelf? Probably not, right? Were, like, let me, I'll ask you the same question I asked Clifton. Were you encouraged by what you saw out of Bo today? Not really, and but I do. I agree with Clifton's general thesis, and it's it's what we kind of talked about in the pregame. Is one, are you moving him because you actually think it'll get him going, or because you don't have another solution for it? And two, what is the lineup iteration that looks better? So um, I, I agree with Clifton that you got to kind of let him figure it out. And, and the toughest part about this is that you don't want to change who Bo Bichette is at a fundamental level, and that's a really aggressive hitter. So I look at the four plate appearances he had today and his first single is a bad pitch 1-0 that he probably shouldn't have swung at but it's a good example of Bo can be a bad pitch hitter so maybe you don't want him to to lay off that kind of stuff second plate appearance same thing he gets a 1-1 count and swings at a pitch that's probably ball two but he has that ability to to make that into a play now I thought he got away from that a little bit in his other two plate appearances um, jumping really early in counts one of those was a really good 0-1 pitch that he probably should have done more with and would like it back um and so i don't know it's a good today's a good example where like process wise no it wasn't it wasn't very good it's still a lot of really quick counts he didn't see a lot of pitches he wasn't super selective but he had two hits on bad pitches this is what bobichette does it's what he's really good at so uh yeah clifton's right you watch the film you see what you could do better um, you know, you continue to try to narrow in that level of selective aggression where you're looking for a certain pitch or a certain zone, but you can't change who Bo Bichette is because if you want that 29 home run, 23-year-old shortstop back, it's got to be a version of Bo Bichette, not a completely new player. We'll get back to the phone lines in a sec, 416-870-0590, 590 star 590 on your cell. You can always text us as well at 590 590 name and location you're listening to jay's talk i'm show that's blake we'll be right back on the sportsnet radio network welcome back to jay's talk on the sportsnet radio network show and blake in for blair and barker the guys are back tomorrow we break down a two to one blue jays win to set up a rubber match against the astros tomorrow Kevin Gossman will go uh, on the mound, while Framber Valdez will go for the Astros tomorrow. Seems very early to be thinking about this kind of thing already, but the Jays could lock up the tiebreaker against the Astros Ooh. for potential seeding or final wildcard spot stuff with a win tomorrow. Who would have thought you'd be talking about that kind of stuff in April? I mean, I know it's basically it's May tomorrow, but still, who would have thought? You get your Astros games out of the way early, that's what uh, that's what you got to keep an eye on. <laughs> you get the Astros games out of the way early while the balls are still dying <laughs> in the outfield, essentially, because that, that is a team that can punish some baseballs and if you're in uh, if you're in Houston or uh, anywhere else that's a little more humid perhaps later on in the year, uh, that might change uh, in a hurry. Uh, let's get to the bet 365 standings update. Bet365 is the world's favorite sports book with 63 million members worldwide, 19-plus play responsibly, Ontario only. And a quick look at the AL East. The Yankees are 14-6. and six. The Jays are now 14-8. and eight. The Yankees play later tonight. 
Uh, Tampa Bay is 12 and eight. They will probably be 12 and nine, barring a, a massive comeback. They're down five to one to the Twins right now in the, I believe it's the eighth inning. And Boston and Baltimore are playing each other. Red Sox are nine and 12. Baltimore, uh, they're six and 14. Although, to be honest with you, Blake, I don't know how much uh, we're going to be updating people on the Baltimore Orioles this year, barring them playing the Blue Jays. They, I was going to say they have 76 <laughs> very important games against the other four AL East teams. Yes. No. No interest whatsoever in what they do their other 86 games, but for a little bit, they'll be important there. Uh, it's nice that this is, when you read that out, it, it kind of highlights why, even if it's not sustainable for a whole season, this one-run game performance is so meaningful because the Jays are sitting here 14-8, and eight and, and maybe in a normalized stretch of games that's closer to 11-11 or 12-10 um, because of that one-run game variance, but really important to stack these wins early. Let's go back to the, the text line as well. I see a couple texts here. Uh, this one from Brent in Hamilton. At what point does Bo get moved down the lineup? Are they protecting his confidence? He doesn't look like he's having much fun. Um, also, uh, Brent says uh, Clifton needs to give his head a shake. Bo can find his way down. Bo can find his way from down in the lineup. It's the majors. I see another one here from Mike and Angus. Agrees on the Bradley Zimmer stuff from earlier. It is a shame that Zimmer doesn't make more contact because he's probably the fastest to first out of the box on the team. And I see one here. This one, Jeff in London. Uh, gotta love the record, but would love a couple no-doubt wins. The bats are still cold. We are battling for first. Not a bad thing, but miss the blowouts. Maybe need a series with Baltimore. Thoughts on that? <laughs> That's from Jeff in London, just because we're talking about the Orioles a little bit. I just I, It's funny, right? Because the Orioles... Oddly, in the last couple of games, they have—I mean, they haven't won a lot of games, but they have been putting up a decent amount of runs in their last couple of games. I mean, they have—you know—for every for every bad pitching performance you get, you also get good hitting performances from guys like Cedric Mullins and and players like him. I, I still have confidence that over the course of the whole season, the Blue Jays will be able to win a good chunk of their games against Baltimore. They're not going to win every game against Baltimore, but. They should be winning most games against Baltimore. I agree with the general point of the text, though, which is that the Jays should be able to just be like, no, we're playing Baltimore this week anytime they want. I would enjoy that. Right. I think the Jays should get to play 162 against Baltimore if they really want. Um, it's a little – it's been tough to contextualize the Jays' start at the plate because obviously it's been pretty boomer bust where you get, you know, one nothing and 2-1 victories sandwiched around an 11-7 loss. And it's just hard to get a handle on where baseball is at for offense as a whole, where I think people would probably be surprised to hear that coming into today, the Jays were a top 10 offense that by weighted runs created plus, which kind of adjusts for a bunch of things so everyone's on the same scale, they were 10% above league average at the plate. Right. I think people would have been surprised at that when you hear, hey, no Teoscar for a big chunk. Um, a couple guys have missed a few games here and there. Bo is struggling. Kevin Biggio has been unplayable while he was healthy I think if you laid all that out them still being a top 10 offense relative to the rest of the league would, would be you take it right and I think this group very unquestionably still has top three offensive upside so um, I, I definitely understand the concern and you'd want to see some more wins like that but I'm trying to take it as a as a victory early on as a positive early on that with what you think is probably the floor of your offense you're still 14 and 8 Absolutely, yeah. Being 14-8 and eight at this point in the season, and we'll have to see what happens tomorrow, but coming into this series, having yet to lose a series, of course, they split that four-game series against the Yankees and have won basically all the other ones, right? Going Taking two out of three, 
Um, right? Because what do they say? You, you, you're going you're, you're gonna to lose a third of your games. You're going to win a third of your games. What happens with the other third? <laughs> that is what matters. So, so far, the Blue Jays are winning a lot of that extra third, right? So, hey, I think uh, that's, uh, that's always good news early on in the season. I see a text here from uh, Jeremy in Norwich, and he says, is, is it just me or does Barrios look more comfortable with players on base? Than without, and uh, we haven't we haven't spoken too much about Barrios today. Uh, it was a, it was a decent start from him. I thought five and two thirds, seven hits, one earned run, two walks, and five strikeouts. And of course, the one earned run was a towering home run from uh, Jordan Alvarez right into the WestJet flight deck. Boy, that ball looked like it was never coming down. But hey, Barrios got out got himself out of a couple of jams. At a number of points in this game, especially guys that advancing to second and third with one out or something like that, and he still managed to get out of it. I, I, I got to say, it wasn't the cleanest start from Jose Barrios, that's for sure. But I, I was I was relatively impressed given that he got into trouble relatively early on. And that's been the case with Barrios, right? Is He's done some stuff well, and, and then he's had to dance around trouble. And this is three starts in a row now where he's danced around trouble pretty effectively. Right. So that's, I mean, this is how this guy has been so consistent year over year, right? Suddenly, even with the opening day start, his ERA is down to 413. This guy's been locked in at a high three ZRA year over year over year. And part of it is some days he has really great stuff and he's, he looks like an ace. And then most days, and I know the home opener is still fresh on people's minds, but historically with Barrios, most days when he doesn't have his best stuff, he still can grind out a three over six kind of game. So um, I thought it was encouraging. The the Who was that text from, Jeremy? Yes, Jeremy. So, Jeremy, you'll be happy to know that statistically, Barrios has been way better with men on base this year than with with the bases empty. I don't think that'll sustain. I'm not sure there are a lot of pitchers who uh, would sustain that over any kind of sample, but your eye test is right in that uh, he's certainly performed better with men on base so far this season. Brios is is such a fascinating player, right? Because this goes back to the conversations. I feel like a lot of the fan base was having coming into the season about about the word ace, right? And it's something mm-hmm. you and I have talked about before, about, like, does it really matter if a player is an ace or not? And, I mean, how many aces are there in Major League Baseball? Twelve. In, yeah, maybe. Maybe. It's, it's the same with basketball, and I, I don't want to put everything through the frame of basketball, but it's similar to the Pascal Siakam conversation of, sure. like, oh, is he a superstar? It's right. like, okay, but the type of superstar you're talking about, there are, like, eight or nine of them in basketball. All 30 teams can't have one, yeah. and you can't just shrug your shoulders and be like, well, we're not playing this year. We don't have one. Um, I think it's similar with an ace sometimes. Now, that gets a lot easier if you are good enough to avoid the wild card because then you're looking at, oh, who's your number four starter as the most important thing, right? It's You know you're getting whatever order you put Gossman, Manoa, and Barrios in, you're getting six good starts in a seven-game series. It shifts the question entirely. So that would be my advice. Simply avoid the wild card and win the division, and then you don't have to worry about it as much who's pitching in a wild card scenario. I would think right now, though, on merit and on how it feels when they're taking the hill and stuff, Brios is probably the three. Yeah, behind Manoa and Gosman. In some order, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think you're, you're probably right, right? I mean, I'm, I am very much looking forward to tomorrow. Gosman and that splitter, I mean, that has got to be – one of the most unhittable pitches, like his particular splitter, maybe in all of Major League Baseball. It's ridiculous. Right? It's, and, it's, it's, it's silly is what it is. Yeah, and the thing about his, his walkless streak that's so impressive is that guys know what's coming. It's I, I know we all mix in a third pitch, but it's mostly two pitches, yeah. and nobody in baseball is throwing the ball in the zone as much as him. 
it's just a dare you to hit it, I bet you can't kind of thing. Uh, and it's it's super, super impressive. I'm really looking forward to that start tomorrow. I see here a text on the text line. Again, you can shoot us one at 590-590, name and location. It was a very brief one from a Toronto area code. Zimmer is done when Dexter Fowler is ready. And it's funny, Fowler is someone who we haven't spoken a lot about. Just, I mean, you know, he, is, he was assigned to what was it, a minor league invite, and then he was he's playing down with the Bisons as he kind of gets, mm-hmm. as he gets into game shape and so on. And it's just, it's funny to think that, gosh, was it the year, I believe he won a World Series ring with the Cubs in 2016, mm-hmm. and then he signed with the Cardinals that offseason, I want to say. And I think it was the, the, the tenor of what the Blue Jays were going to get that offseason uh, was who are they going to sign in the outfield? And it kind of felt like, I, I think what ended up happening that particular year was the Blue Jays signed Grichik, essentially, and, and instead of Dexter Fowler signed with the Cardinals, and then we got Grichik instead here in Toronto. And hey, look, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to take this as an opportunity to bash Grichik. I, I've appreciated what, what he, for what the kind of player he was during his time in Toronto, Randall Grichik, but it's just interesting to see the Dexter Fowler story come full circle. I do wonder, though, I mean, he's been playing in Buffalo relatively recently. I do wonder when he would come up. I know Ben Wagner was talking about him being some potential reinforcements if Teoscar Hernandez and that oblique uh, is not ready for the series against the Guardians next week. So if that's the case, I wonder at which point we will see Dexter Fowler and if it would come at the expense of someone like Bradley Zimmer. I would need to see a lot more of Dexter Fowler performing at AAA. Like, this is a guy who his knee blew up in 2019, and we haven't really seen him uh, since. He's 36 years old. He, he hasn't... You know, what is he? He played seven games last year and 31 the year before that, and he's only gotten two in with Buffalo so far. So I'd want to see a little bit more. You also have to worry about juggling the 40 man, Zimmer's out of options, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, he might be, you know, he might get to a point where you're like, oh, he would be a better option than Bradley Zimmer right this second. Um, but the counter that would be like, well, when it comes to maintaining depth over the course of 162 games, potentially losing Zimmer and clearing the 40-man spot for Fowler and then potentially having to send him back down later, um, you know, it might not be worth it to upgrade your bench outfielder spot uh, for a series or two. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see if there is anything left in the tank for Dexter Fowler. And again, if he does come up, it's not going to be for a very long period of time because as we've said, and as everyone knows, it's not exactly a breaking analysis from, from me here, but when the when you look at the outfield, it's going to be George Springer. It's going to be Lourdes Gurriel Jr. And when he's healthy, it's going to be Teoscar Hernandez. Um, we haven't really spoken too much today about uh, some of the relief pitching. Today we, of course, saw Adam Simber. We saw Tim Meza. And we saw Jordan Romano. And, of course, uh, Tim Meza, i got to say, Blake, since June 1st, he has an ERA of under two, a whip of less than one, K over nine, 959, walk rate 137, 1.2 war. It's just, I mean, those are a lot of fancy numbers, <laughs> but it's a, lot of, it's, a, it's a really easy way to say Tim Meza has been one of the better relievers in, dare I say, the entire American League. Yeah, we don't even need to quantify it with relievers sometimes. It's, it's like relievers to me, obviously the numbers are helpful, but a lot of the time it's it's feel, right? It's like, well, are you worried when this guy comes in the game? Right. And he comes in tonight, and it's like, okay, well, you're going to face Jordan Alvarez, and he walks him. And it's like, oh, yikes, because Yuli Gurriel's up next, and he has big splits, right? But he gets through that, and then you 
are absolutely confident in him against Kyle Tucker in the lefty-lefty matchup, and he's improved enough against right-handers that he then sticks around for the bottom of the Astros order, and a day after you had to use six relievers, Mays is able to bridge you to your closer by getting four outs even when he doesn't have the platoon splits in his favor. So that's the big growth to me. I, I think... You know, pre the three batter minimum, Meza as a loogie would have been a, a no brainer. Like he would have been this era's Aaron Loop of always on the roster. Right. Um, but his improvement against right handed hitters is what's going to give him utility in the eighth inning, potentially, like he was used tonight, in the seventh inning in higher leverage spots, um, and not just necessarily spots where it's beefy on lefties in the order. Yeah, Tim Meza has been. I mean, we've said this a lot, right? We talked about this in the pregame about Trevor Richards, and he had a bad game yesterday, there's no doubt about it. But by and large, despite being overtaxed, the bullpen has still been, relatively speaking, dependable, right? And I mean, yep. I don't, I don't think like they're they're gonna have blowups here and there because that's the nature of of bullpen and relief pitching. But I don't, I don't think it's. I, I think you can still feel pretty comfortable when you see Mesa out there on the mound, for example, or Simber, or I, I still would say Richards or Garcia or any of those guys. Yeah, and look, this is why Friday, the way that game played out is it's important to sometimes take a whole series view of it right where that game was winnable they were they lost 11-7 but with this offense you you know if you keep that to six or seven or eight and you kind of stop the bleeding your bats could keep you in it but charlie montoya and the rest of the staff have to make a decision is it is that worth it with your higher leverage relievers on the chances of a comeback or do you not write that game off because you still have belief in your later inning guys? But they came into today with not a, Romano, Meza, Simber, and Jimmy Garcia all fresh. So if this game had, well, it was a one-run game, but if you'd had to go into the bullpen even earlier with this game as tight as it is, you had all your best arms available. So yeah. that's the benefit of, you know, Friday, no, they didn't do a good job at all. Like their number, the numbers speak for themselves, and you had to use six of them. That wears out your bullpen a little bit, but surviving that without having to use your key guys and preserving them for later in the series where now you're going for the series win tomorrow and you have everyone available i would imagine and and you have your top pitcher so far on the mound so you feel like even with the how negative friday was you feel pretty good i think about your chances to win the series and part of that is how the um how the bullpen usage has shaken out we got a couple minutes here uh, left to go on Jay's talk. Why don't we get to a couple more texts? I see a couple about Jordan Romano, and I, I see one here from Will and Binbrook. Is Romano appearing in an unsustainable amount of games right now? Of course, he picked up his 10th save today, uh, which I believe tied in with Josh Hader for the uh, MLB lead in saves. And, of course, I see another one here from Scott and Bob Cajun. Uh, Romano's velo seems to be back. He has such great stuff that I think it's been covering that his fastball has been slower than normal. So are, are any concern at all with Jordan Romano's usage? I, Generally speaking, I would say no because, I don't know, maybe, maybe again, maybe some redlining going on there with the usage at times. But at the same time, Jordan Romano seems to be that. I mean, I, I, I hate breaking things down like this and just saying, well, he's a gamer. But at the same time, he's the kind of player who goes out there and demands the ball in these kinds of situations. And I don't think – maybe it is unsustainable. But, I mean, you know, we just talked about the bullpen. The other guys you're going to in one-run games, I guess Tim Meza, probably Adam Simber at this point, they're the, the, the most immediate guys I would think of to come out instead of Romano. It, look, it's definitely a thing, and relievers have a certain number of bullets in the chamber, and you want to be careful with it. But 
the Jays have been in an abnormal number of one-run games. And what is the point of having an elite closer if not to help you go 8-2 and two in those one-run games? So there are probably opportunities to try to get him a blow moving forward. You know, he hasn't pitched on consecutive days in over a week, so that's a, that's a positive. Um, you know, you, you don't necessarily want to have to use him like that, but really, I mean, there's only been two instances all year where he pitched on back-to-back days. Which doesn't feel right. It doesn't, actually. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was wrong uh, in my head, and then I looked it up. I'm like, no, it's only happened. It happened the 21st and the 22nd, Boston and Houston games. Right. And it happened 8-9 in the Texas series to start the year. Okay. So, and, and look, that, that one blip that he had, which was the, the last Houston series on the road, he seems to have put that behind him. So, I don't know. It's definitely something you want to monitor. You don't want Jordan Romano throwing 100 innings. But if he's on pace for, you know, 60 innings, I think you're – you're okay with that. And I know he's on pace for a little bit more than that uh, right now, but not significantly more than that. Yeah, and, of course, he broke the uh, record formerly held over over two seasons, but still formerly held by uh, Tom Henke, the Terminator, right? And, of course, uh, like I mentioned, tied for the major league lead in saves. And I, I got to imagine the way they use Jordan Romano, I think you're going to see that. A lot. You're going to see a lot more opportunities for saves going forward. But Jordan Romano has been absolutely fantastic. Tim Meza has been absolutely fantastic. And the Blue Jays win again 2-1. to one. Blake, this was fun. I hope we get to do this again, relatively speaking, relatively soon. Yeah, it's nice to get to do it at the ballpark, too. And I got my little – it's the first time in, since maybe my dad's softball league that I've done the scorecard. So uh, that was fun, too. That's Blake Murphy. Always fun getting to do these shows with him. Blair and Barker will be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Blue Jays Baseball, served up by the always game-ready Jack Links. Meet Snacks, feed your wild side baseball fans. Blue Jays win it 2-1. Kevin Gosman on the mound for the Jays. Framber Valdez for the Astros. Blair and Barker are back tomorrow. We'll talk to you then.